Okay, what should we do and what should we not do concerning evangelism? What are the do's and don'ts to help us along the way? Because we're, I assume all of you are going to be involved with Muslims, and I want to make sure that what you do is correct. Uh, we have been working with Muslims. I've been working personally with Muslims for 25 years. Uh, but my, the team of us in London have been working in probably one of the most volatile environments with Muslims for the last 15 years there at a place called Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, central London. And we have found some ideas, some things that have helped us along the way that we want to pass on to you. Primarily because many times as Christians, we just make an awful lot of mistakes. I think one of the difficulties we have as Christians is that we're not, we're, we just don't know how to take our faith publicly. We don't have lots of good models of what to do, how to use it. And yet when you're working with Muslims, whether you're in a tea shop, or whether you're in, in a home, whether you're in a mosque or on a side street or on a book table or at a place like Speaker's Corner, you're immediately in a very public environment where Muslims feel a lot more comfortable than you do. And so, unfortunately, we tend to mess up. So we're going to help you with some of the uh, things of what you need to learn, what you need to do so that you don't mess up. Remember that whenever you engage with Muslims publicly, we're not able very well to uh, define what we believe and defend it publicly. We usually do that with a written word or we do that uh, certainly at home and we're in, uh, in private. You're going to have to learn how to do that in a public environment so that you can hold your head above water and so you can hold your own. And that's one of the difficulties. So when you are engaging with Muslims now, especially for those of you who are living uh, in your own country where you're going to make contact with Muslims, go and find them. They're in your schools. I'm sure they're in your workplace. Maybe they're right even next door. Maybe you have some friends who are Muslims already. Engage with them and see and use it basically as a laboratory yeah, because it is a laboratory. You can make your mistakes here. Don't worry if you say the wrong things. They'll let you know. That's one of the lovely things about Muslims. I think it's a terrific that they are so engaged with religion. I find that they are the easiest to work with because they love to talk about God. They love to talk about the things I like to talk about. If you go to your Muslim friend or your colleague or somebody you meet in the street who you know is a Muslim and you tell them that you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and you believe that this Bible is the word of God, they're going to have something to say about it. They will. They'll have an opinion at least. And immediately you'll start the engagement. Now you may say the wrong thing. Don't worry about it. You can get back and get back up on the horse again. Just don't make the same mistake twice. At Speaker's Corner, which is one of the most hostile environments, if we say the wrong thing, boy, they yell Allahu Akbar in our face. And I think it's one of the greatest ways to learn your apologetics because you remember the face of the person that's yelling Allahu Akbar. You remember every one of the questions that you were embarrassed by. You never make that same mistake twice. So use it as a laboratory. Use your time now as a laboratory. Use it to, to find out what the mistakes are. If you don't know a question, and then the questions will come fast and furious, if you don't know an answer to the question, say, give me a week. That's my favorite phrase. Give me a week. That means you have one week to get up online, to go on the Internet, to go into your commentaries, ask your pastor, find the answer so you can come back the next week and give them the answer, and you can start building up your apologetics. And I can't think of a better way to build up our apologetics than to engage with Muslims because they are asking the right questions. Almost everything they're throwing at us is foundational to everything we believe. They are the first to attack the Trinity. They are the first to attack and challenge the Christology of Christ. Then certainly they're the first to challenge the authority of our scriptures. All areas that are foundational to what we believe. So use it as a laboratory. Remember also that Muslims are not monolithic. There's a great mosaic of who Muslims are. Every Muslim you meet will probably have a different, uh, certainly a different style, a different, certain different types of question. Uh, 
And so the answers need to be dovetailed depending on who's standing in front of you. Find out where they're from. You will find that if uh, they are Arab speaking or from the Middle East, uh, they will not have a linear sense of logic. They'll probably have every much of a cyclical form of logic. They will not at all doubt the veracity, authenticity of their scriptures or the authenticity of their prophet. They'll just assume it's a given that you understand that the prophet was Muhammad. They will not even know that you have a problem with that. You're going to have to help them with that. If you have a Turk standing in front of you, you're going to have to teach them what they're to believe before you can break it, break it down. Because most Turks don't know much diddly swat about religion. Same way with a lot of the North Africans from Algeria, Morocco, Libya, places like that. I find when I work with them, I find that I, they will just basically only know, much, they will only know politics. They won't know much theology. And they'll want to attack us because we're part of the West or because we are Bushites or whatever the name, whatever the person is that's in charge at the time. And they will probably want to engage you on a political dialogue rather than get you into much theology. Help them to understand the theological basis, foundations for what we're saying. If you have an Egyptian, you'll probably get a much more theological discussion because many of the Egyptians do study theology and they understand what Christianity is about because they have a large minority of Christians. About 10% of Egypt is made up of cops. And so they will know what they believe and they will have some ideas and certainly a lot of good challenges concerning our scriptures. But when you get an Asian, especially somebody from Pakistan or India, you're going to have to take a deep breath because you're going to be in for a real battle. Now I find they're the best. They're the most difficult to use. And I get engaged, I get excited by them because of the fact that they already know many of them come with my Bible in their hands. They have it underlined with all the supposed contradiction, with all the supposed errors. They'll have many tags in their Bible and many times they'll have it memorized in their heads. And they'll challenge you with verse after verse after verse and you're sitting there, you're going to be reeling, just wondering where it all comes from. And you'll sit there and you'll be, you'll be uh, very impressed Absolutely with impressed with how good a job they have done. How many Christians know the Quran like they know the Bible? They're way ahead of us on this. And that's why I find it great, exciting to live in a place like London, where 70% of all those the Muslims that live there are from the Indian subcontinent, are from places like Pakistan and from India. It's an area that I love because it's where I was born and where I grew up, and I understand that mindset very well. Now remember... When you're engaging with Muslims, if you get into a good discussion, a lot of my students, what I ask them to do is find the Muslims in their area and then basically initiate a group discussion once a week. Take a subject per week. Or you might want to take the Trinity, or you might want to take the, the personhood of God, or you might want to take the person of Jesus Christ in both scriptures, or you might want to take peace and violence. Whatever the subject is for the next week, study on it, get ready for it, engage with it. But don't be surprised, don't be surprised if the Muslims start bringing quite a few people to these, to these discussion groups. And when they bring a lot of people, maybe you might be alone with, or one other. We always encourage you to go in groups of two. But if you have and you arrive at these discussion groups, you might see 10, maybe 20 people that come to these discussion groups. It's exciting when that happens. If that happens, and certainly it should happen, or if you're in a tea room and you get involved in a tea discussion in a tea room in a foreign country or even in your own country, or if you're at a book table and you immediately get into these kind of discussions, there will always be one person that will engage mostly with you, and usually it will always be the person who usually initiates the meeting, or it could be the imam. Usually by the second or third week, they bring an imam or a scholar or a daist. A daist is someone who does the Dawa means to invite, so basically they're a missionary. They'll bring them along and they'll start engaging with you. Don't worry, you're not going to convince that diest. You're not there to, to convince that diest. But it's the crowd that's listening that should be your focus. It's the people who are silent, who are listening. Now what can you do? What you need to do is to engage and bring them into the discussion. Turn to them. 
Say, do you agree with what he just said? What do you think about that? And what you will find is a lot of times they don't agree with the guy that's doing the talking. And they'll start arguing amongst them and each other. And it's great fun. Just sit back and let the discussion go ahead. Because what I have found, if you get five Muslims, they'll have five different opinions. Because so much of Islam is not written down. So much of it is, is multifaceted. There's such a mosaic within Islam. There are so many Islams that you can basically really divide and conquer. Not that we're there to divide and conquer, but just so Muslims that they aren't agreed on many of these areas. But more than that, when you take the crowd and you get engaged and bring them into the discussion, what you're doing is you're helping them to own the material. You're helping them to be a part of the discussion. They will remember that discussion much better than if they were just silent observers. So bring them into the discussion. Get their opinion. If there are two of you who are going together, make sure one of you always supports the other. Please don't start arguing with the other Christian. We've had that happen a few times. Make sure you work together as a team. If there's more than any of you, give verbal consent. Ah, oh, that was a great idea. Could you be quiet? I like hearing what he's saying. Could you repeat that again? Things like that that really help the person that's talking. Because the Muslims do that all the time. They're always shutting me up, trying to make sure they hear the Muslim repeat it two or three times, trying to make sure that I... And it's a great tactic. Well, we can use it both ways. But make sure that you do look and engage the crowd. Get everybody involved. Because then they will own it. They will then walk away having owned it. They will make much more impression on them. They're the ones that are going to look and see how you talk, how the Muslim talks, and they're going to see that we basically have the better material. We almost always have the better material. We just don't always get it across the best. So let's look at, and now look at some specific methodologies of what you can use. First and foremost, remember, you need to pray. Why? Because this engagement that you have, this uh, battle, if you want to call it, is not only a battle on the ground, it's also a battle in the heavenlies. And you cannot go into this battle without any protection. You've got to make sure you have that protection. Before you go, make sure you're praying. As you go, whether you're going to a mosque, whether you're going to a tea stall, whether you're going to a book table, make sure there's people praying for you. Make sure there's prayer covering. Every time when I get up on that ladder at Speaker's Corner at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I know there are a good 20 churches over in America who are praying at 11 o'clock in the morning the same time, and they're praying for my safety. They're praying that what I say is, is pleasing to God. They're praying that I will not be humiliated on the day. They're praying that the gospel will be preached in power. I cannot get up on that letter unless I know I'm having prayer support. I dare not get up on that letter unless I have that prayer covering. You must be the same. Don't trivialize prayer. It is absolutely essential. Before you go, make sure there you do pray. While you're there, make sure you pray. We ask people always to make sure they go in groups of, of two. Why? Not only for the fact that you need that other, other person there, but as the person is speaking, the other person prays. All right? Always make sure that one person is praying while the other is speaking. And then flip. If the person that's speaking runs out of ideas, the person that prays can jump in with a new idea, then the person who's speaking, then you begin to pray. And when you finish, go back and have a time of prayer to pray about what has been said, to pray for the people that have been there, to pray that the Holy Spirit will now work and really engage on the hearts and the minds of those people to accept and assimilate everything they've heard. You need prayer before, you need prayer be during, and you need prayer after. Don't go expecting any other. Now, rule of thumb one. Scratch where they itch. What do I mean by that? Well, you need to know exactly what their problems are. You need to find out what their questions are. Let them question you to begin with. 
assume that they will have, and they will have lots of questions, but you must maintain control. Why? Well, you will find that a lot of Muslims will have a question, they'll ask you the first question, and they'll see that you know the answer, then they'll jump to the next question, they'll see you know that answer, and then they'll jump to the next question, and they have a whole shopping list of questions they come with. Don't let them do that. They're only there to try to try to find any chink in your armor. Do not let them get away with that. So make sure you maintain control. By this I mean if you have the first question and they, add, you, they see that you have, that you have an answer to that, they jump to the next question, bring them back to that first question. Say, no, 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 hold on. I want to stick to this question. That's a good question. In fact, let me show you why it's a good question. Let me give you an example, one we've used already before. Can God enter time and space? And they sit there and they ask you that question. And you say, hold on a minute. Who are you to tell me God can't enter time and space? Of course you can enter time and space. That's easy. They realize you suddenly got an answer. They also realize they're going to be put on the hot seat. So they jump to the next question. Say, oh, no, 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 no. Hold on. Stick to that question. That's a great question. It's fascinating. You as a Muslim want to move on. Don't you want to talk about whether God can enter time and space? This is hugely significant. You've got to listen because you're the ones that's accusing God that he can't enter. Don't ever say that to God. Stay here. Let me tell you why it's important that God can enter time and space. Because that tells me that he's big enough. That tells me he's great enough. That tells me I've got a different view of God than you do. Your God is a pretty small God. You need a bigger God. Come on home. We've got the big God. And then you can just sit there and just preach about it. And you have the right to do so because the fact that he entered it, the fact that they challenged you, the fact that they uh, initiated the, the, the question gives you a platform to preach the gospel. Oh, I love to preach the gospel. And you preach the gospel as well. Use it to preach the gospel. Engage with them. Continue with them. Show how it, it's relevant. And then also by doing that, you're showing how big our God is, how great our God is, how important our God is. In every question, you should be able to get the gospel into it. Make sure it comes around to the gospel. So yes, certainly, scratch where they itch. But make sure you use it to your advantage. Make sure the gospel gets into that. Make sure you maintain control so they don't go just romp, jumping off from question to question to question to question. Bring it back so the gospel gets in. So that's the first rule of thumb. Second rule of thumb, scratch where they don't itch. What that means is go to the places they don't want to go. They will want to sit there and mainly have a lot of the accusations on the Trinity, on the person of Jesus Christ, on the authority of Scripture. They'll have their whole litany of questions. So every time they ask you a question, say on the Trinity, they say, hold about it, what about your Trinity? What about Surah 50, Ayah 16? What about Surah 13, Ayah 16? What about Surah 85, Ayah 22? Oh, do, 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 do. Then suddenly, when you get to that, you can see they're getting itchy. They don't want to go beyond that. Make sure that you also use polemics. They say our scriptures are corrupted. We answer it. We say, absolutely not. When and before or after Muhammad, then you support that. And they say, hold on a minute. I'm not finished now. I want to ask you about your scriptures. What about your manuscript evidence? Do you have an original? Do you have any of the originals that was there created at the time of Uthman under the auspices of Zaidi bin Thabit? Do you have any one of those manuscripts? Are you aware of the fact that there's not one manuscript at all from the 7th century? You sit there and you tell me we don't have a manuscript. What about you? You would not expect us to have manuscripts because they were written on papyrus. Parchment and vellum were not invented until the 4th century. But your Quran was written in the 7th century. You have no excuse under the world not to have an original of this manuscript. That's 300 years later. We have 300 years before this book was even created. We have the entire Bible right there in London. Come on, where are your manuscripts? Put them on the hot seat. Scratch where they don't itch. You need to do that. We need to do that as Christians because Muslims get away with murder. Now, I don't mean murder uh, literally. But they get away with all kinds of accusations with ever, ever, not ever having to support their own manuscripts. And I think we need to start putting the onus on Islam. 
They have an awful lot more to answer for than we do. Thank God we've got our answers. They need to start answering. We need to put the, them on the defensive. And the crowd needs to see that. The world needs to see that Islam has all the problems we don't. We have the material. We've done our research. We've put it together. We're now communicating. Islam has yet to do their research. They do not have the material. They need to be shown for what they are. And Islam needs to be exposed. And we are the only ones that can expose them. More than that, we're the only ones that will expose them. Okay? So do scratch where they don't itch. As much as that makes them feel uncomfortable, do so. Feel free to do that, especially here in the West. Some of this you cannot do in a Muslim context, but you can in the West. We have all the right to do so. The Muslims are here. They need to hear this material. Now... What about the responses? Christians have a hard time. I don't know what it is. We have a hard time being what we call the three C's. Hold on to the three C's very clearly. That means to be quick, concise, yet comprehensive. Quick, well, okay, it's not a C, but it sounds like a C. You need to be quick in your response. I have a, we have a hard time. We go off on tangents, go off over here, we go off, we, go, we, we talk about anything but what is essential. So be quick in your response. Be concise. Keep it to a two-minute, at the most, five-minute soundbite. Otherwise, you're going to lose your audience. But at the same time, be comprehensive. Get the full gospel in there. All right? I know it's difficult. I know we're not trained to do that. But try, strive as much as you can to do so. The other thing is, do not be verbose. Be succinct. Do not seek erudition. Just be simple. Because the more simple you are, the more the people are going to understand. You're not dealing with, most Muslims are not highly educated. So the more erudite you are, you're probably going to go over their heads anyways. Keep it simple. As I say to people who are living in the West, keep it to an 8th grade educational level. Did you know all our television shows are based on 8th grade educational level? They do that for a reason, so that they get the greatest common denominator. We need to be the same way with our evangelism. Make sure it's simple. For heaven's sakes, don't go into a Muslim context and start preaching as if you're still in church. You must be washed by the blood of the lamb they won't know what word you're saying don't use this verbosity don't use this religiosity make sure that you're using language that they can understand language of the street common language popular language simple words most of the muslims you deal with do not know english as a first language to begin with uh, they will not know the words you're using uh, that's easy to understand if you're in a foreign culture then you're going to have to use their language you're going to be have the same problem because you won't have any other choice but to be simple now, remember that there is a need to be multifaceted in our response. We need to not only know our apologetics, we need to not only know uh, our responses and how to take on the challenges, we need to also go, be able to go on the offensive. It should not only be apologetics, it should not only be polemics, it should be both and. The two are brought together. And we'll talk more about this in the next hour. More than that, be gentle yet passionate, be considerate yet forthright. How you say it is almost as important as what you say. It's amazing to me how many Christians go into a public context and go engage with Muslims and they look so timid and they look so shy. I ask my Muslim friends, What's, how would you define a, a Christian? You know what they tell me? Christians are timid. Christians are weak. Christians don't know what they believe and they certainly don't know what to how to defend what they know. I sit there and I'm shocked by what they tell me. Timid? Why are we so timid? It's because we show ourselves as timid. We don't like, we don't like to be confident. We are, there's something about Christianity that we have Europeanized Christianity to such an extent that the Christ that we show and the Christ that we follow is a European Christ. Have you noticed that Christ on all our movies and all our shows always smiles? Have you noticed he always walks in slow motion? He never goes anywhere fast. 
He never ever raises his voice and he never gets angry. Well, that's not the Christ I know. That's not the Mediterranean Christ that I see here in the New Testament. That's not the Christ that's overturning the tables. That's not the Christ that's yelling there and calling the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you den of vipers. We've forgotten that side of Christ. And we've modeled ourselves on this side of Christ, the European side. We've basically European Christ. We've Europeanized also our evangelism mannerisms. And unfortunately, we're not very convincing because of that. We need to be convincing. We need to be forthright. We need to be passionate. Now, we do not, in the, same, in the same time, we do not ever, ever need to use character assassination. Ad hominem is not, there's not a place for ad hominem in Christian evangelism. What I mean by that, do not attack the person themselves. Don't call them a fool or an idiot. Muslims will do that to you all the time. Don't worry. When you get into Muslim evangelism, when you get into some, some more of the radical Muslims, they will give you every name under the sun. I think I'm, giving, I'm given every week on that letter a choice of names. The amazing things they call me to my face and the things they tell you about my wife and my children, my mother and everybody else, it makes enough to make anybody turn red. Do not ever use that. I don't think you are. I don't think that's going to be a problem. Unfortunately, Christians tend to go into that when they run out of ideas. Let Muslims run out of ideas. You should not run out of ideas. We have much too much good material. There's no reason in the world we should ever have to lower ourselves to do that. Never, ever use character assassination. There's no need to. Because once you start getting personal with a Muslim, you won't ever stop. They will then completely go overboard. They do not like going personal. They don't like you going personal. They will do it all the time. Just let it flow right off you. Don't ever take it personally. Remember, you're not there for yourselves. You're there for God. You're there to represent Jesus Christ. Make sure that if you represent Jesus Christ, you do so legitimately. And then the end game. Before I get that, don't waste time on, in innocuous argumentation. You will find Muslims that are just going to waste your time. Oh, they want to talk about politics. Oh, they want to talk about the weather. Oh, they want to talk about George Bush. Oh, they want to talk about Gordon Brown. Oh, they want to talk about everything else but the gospel. They are there just to do that. And many times they are trained to do that. And many times they're trained to get you off the subject. Be careful. Don't waste time with them. There are plenty of other Muslims that will like to talk about Jesus. You will never, find, uh, uh, you will never have a, a problem finding Muslims that will talk about religion. So don't throw pearls before swine. Now, please, for heaven's sakes, don't say that to a Muslim. I said that once. I've never lived it down. That fellow is still at Speaker's Corner. I think it's been eight years he's been reminding people how I called him a swine at one time. And I didn't really mean that. I was just quoting scripture. Unfortunately, he took it personally for obvious reasons. So don't you do it. I've already learned from that mistake. It doesn't work. End game. What is the end game? Bring every discussion around to the gospel. In everything you do, bring the discussion around to the gospel. Everything, every discussion, you can bring the gospel into it. It's not that hard, especially with Muslims. Why? Because Muslims do like to talk about God. You can therefore talk about the God of the Old Testament. Talk about who that God is. And they do like to talk about the fact that Jesus was not part of the Trinity. Use the Trinity to your advantage. Bring it and show how the triune nature of God makes sense of who we are as people, as relational people. It could, we could only get that relationship in a triune Godhead. And the fact is, almost every question that they throw at us should have a Christian response and should have a gospel response. Now, there are certain fallacies you need to be, be careful of, and we want to end with these. We want to look at ten logical fallacies. These are fallacies that have been put together by a man named Dr. Robert Morey there in California. I have taken his fallacies, and I've enlarged upon them, and I've geared them for a Muslim mindset. 
Uh, his was not, and so I've even given them my own names. But these are fallacies that you can use, that you need, I'm sorry, not use, don't ever use these fallacies. Be aware of these fallacies. These are arguments that Muslims use that basically have no basis to them. They're fallacious, and we get hoodwinked by them all the time. So these are there to warn you, to help you, so you don't get, uh, get caught into them. The first one is what I call the Bibi paradigm. Bibi is short for Benazar Bhutto, the woman, uh, the ex-prime minister of Pakistan, who I debated uh, in the Oxford Union a number of years ago on the, on the subject, is Islam relevant for the 21st century? Benazar Bhutto, beautiful lady, living in London now, used to be the Prime Minister of Pakistan, got up there and she says, this question makes no sense to me. She says, why do you ask whether or not Islam is relevant for the West? Take a look at me. I am a Muslim. I live in London. I am relevant. Therefore, if I am relevant, Islam is relevant. I eat like you, drink like you, sleep, talk, walk, do everything you do. I have no problem living in London. Therefore, since I have no problem living in London as a Muslim, Islam is relevant. So I got up and I looked at her and I said, Bibi, I'm glad you feel comfortable living in London. I'm glad you feel relevant living in London. I'm glad you're happy living in our city. But let me ask you one simple question. You say that you can eat like me? You can eat pork like I can eat pork? You can drink like me? You can drink wine like I can drink wine? I said, where in scripture allows you to say that? Where in this little book here allows you to eat pork and drink wine? I said, what you have done is that basically you have made Islam in your own image. You've created Islam in your own image. You have become your own highest authority. I said, don't call that Islam then. Because Islam is regulated by a revelation. Islam is dictated by a, basically dictated by a model. And that model is the prophet himself. And you know good and well that you cannot eat pork and you cannot drink wine. Don't call it Islam, what you're referring to. Call it Bhutoism, but don't call it Islam. Then I said to her, I would love you to say what you've just said to this crowd back in Pakistan. I would love to see what your constituents would say when, we, when they hear that you can eat pork and you can drink wine like the Westerners can. Would you be willing to say that in Pakistan at a government election? And that shut her right down. Now, what was she doing? She is doing what lots of Muslims do. They will create Islam in their own image. They will tell you what you want to hear. So you pray to God, you pray to Jesus Christ, you do so individually, so do we, they say. We also pray to God, and he answers our prayer. Where in scriptures allow them to say that? Where is there anywhere that Allah answers their prayers? Oh yeah, we're religion, we are a peace, religion of peace. Uh, this book is a book of peace, and the prophet is a man of peace. They'll say that, oh, yeah, I'm sure you've heard them say this. Yet they cannot support in scripture. They never, use, they never quote any scripture whenever they say so. And I would love to know why is it nobody holds them accountable. Basically, they're creating Islam in their own image. They're creating an Islam, a very sanitized Islam, an Islam that is politically correct, an Islam that is acceptable to you and all of us. But that's not the Islam of the Quran. That is not the Islam of the Prophet. It's a very westernized, politically correct, sanitized Islam, and we need to nip it in the bud. Number two, what I call the imposition paradigm. Take as your premise and impose it on another. They will say, well, this Bible, it's not the word of God because it was not sent down tanzil to a prophet like the Quran was sent down tanzil, sent down to Muhammad over a period of 22 years. So therefore, throw away this book. It's not a true revelation. What have they done? They've taken their view of revelation and imposed it on me. I'm sorry, on my revelation. No. 
We don't believe in revelation that has to be sent down. We believe that revelation can be written by men using their own ability, using their own environment, using their own culture, using their own style of writing. But all of the writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we have a totally different view of revelation they do. Their revelation is something that was sent down via the prophet Gabriel, and they assume the same works for us. Don't let them get away with that. Don't let them impose that on you. They ask all the time, where in the Bible does Jesus ever claim to say, I am God? Where does he ever claim he is God? Show me. And if you can show me that Jesus says, I am God, then I will believe. Have you heard them do that? If you haven't, you will. Now stop and think, hold on a minute. Jesus never says, I am God like that, but he claims to be God many times. Every time he takes on a divine title. Every time he claims to be the Son of Man, he's claiming to be God. Every time he claims to be the Son of God, he's claiming to be God. Any time he takes on the, the title of the Messiah, he's claiming to be God. In John eight fifty eight, when he claims to be Yahweh, before Abraham was, I am. Yahweh, he's claiming to be God. How do I know that? Because for the first century Jew, they knew that any one of these titles were divine titles. Jesus did not say, I am God, in those words. He said, I am God, every time he claimed one of these titles. And look at the reaction of the Jews. They picked up stones to stone him because he was claiming to be God. For a Jewish environment, you do not take on those titles. You do not forgive sin. You cannot do any of that unless you are God yourself. Jesus many times claimed to be God, but not in the words the Muslims want to see. See, the Muslims want it because they're always telling God what he shouldn't and cannot do. They're always telling God what he cannot do, and they're telling God how he should basically identify himself. Shame on the Muslims for doing that. So don't let them uh, impose their agenda on you. Smokescreen, red herring, the third fallacy. The tactic here is to divert attention from the weakness of one's own premise with the intention of putting us on the defensive. This is always done uh, whenever the problem of violence or peace comes up. They're always trying to basically make sure that you don't talk about their violence, so they attack us with the Crusades. Have you noticed they've done this all the time? You Christians, you call yourself peaceful, but look at the Crusades. And so they sit there and they try to divert attention from their own conquests. Nobody wants to talk about their conquests. They'd rather talk about our Crusades. Or they don't want to talk about anything about their God and the fact that their God is totally other and always in heaven. So they attack us right, left, and center on the Trinity. They really don't care about the Trinity. They don't really want to know about the Trinity. Rarely have I ever found a Muslim that's ever convinced by the Trinity. But they spend every Sunday afternoon at Speaker's Corner initiating every discussion with that argument. Why? Because they're not interested in finding truth. They're only interested in basically as a red herring, as a smoke stream, get, to get the attention off of them and onto us. Don't let them get away with that. Call it for what it is. Number four, historical precedent. The new may test the old and takes precedent over it. What they assume is they're using the law of abrogation, which is found in Surah 2, Ayah 101. It's found in Surah 16, Ayah 106 in the Quran, which stipulates if you have two contradictory verses within the Quran, actually, you always go with the later verse. You always go with the Medinan verse. The one, actually, the Medinan is not the beginning part. That which comes later, that was, which was revealed later, is always the most authoritative. Well, if you have two scriptures, this scripture which comes first and this scripture which comes second that, that are contradictory, then you'll apply the law of abrogation. Therefore, we always go with the Quran because it comes later. It is the more authoritative. It abrogates the earlier. And that's what they, they use that argument all the time. But that's not how historical precedent works. Historical precedent always works with the earliest is the most authoritative because it's closest to the event. 
So if this book here claims that Jesus died on the cross, and this book claims that Jesus did not die on the cross, the cross, the crucifixion, is a historical event, which one are you going to go with? Well, any historian will know that this is more authoritative because it's closer to the event. In fact, it was written by some eyewitnesses to that event. John was an eyewitness. The other disciples, they met Jesus three days later. They knew exactly who was standing in front of them. They knew that was Jesus. They knew he had resurrected from the dead. So obviously we'll go with that witness because it was happening. It was written, it was written down at the same time period. This was written 600 years later. So the idea of historical precedent makes no sense for a Muslim if they don't understand what historical precedent is all about. Don't let them get away with that. Now, cyclical argument. Cyclical argument starts from the premise that assumes that your premise, in your premise, what you are going to state in your conclusion. Now, this is mostly an argument that comes from Arab speakers or people from the Middle East. They don't understand the difference. They don't understand the idea of cyclical uh, logic. They don't, I'm sorry, they don't understand the, uh, the idea of linear logic. Theirs is cyclical. So they say, when I ask them, well, how do you know that this book is authoritative? They say, well, Muhammad says he's authoritative. I say, well, how do you know Muhammad's authoritative? Well, the book says he's authoritative. Wait a minute, didn't you just tell me that this gives him authority? And he gives it authority. So basically, it's just a circle, back and forth, back and forth. What outside of the two? They say, it doesn't matter. We don't need any other authority than Muhammad himself. Muhammad is all we need for to give authority to the Quran. And the Quran is all we need to give authority to Muhammad. That's a logical fallacy. It makes no sense. Now, most of your agents know that, and they usually don't bring this argument. Number six, false analogy, equivocation, comparing two things as if they are parallel when they are absolutely not. We've already done one earlier on that, and that's the idea that the revelation should be the same when they're not, because we're not dealing with the same de uh, definition of revelation. Another one that they always come about is that, oh, we worship the same God. The God you worship is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God we worship is also the, uh, the God of Abraham, Ishmael and his lineage. You have to stop and say, hold on a minute. No, they aren't the same God. Just because they're, you claim that they're the God of Abraham, it's the wrong analogy. Because when you stop and look at the two gods, you'll see immediately they're not the same gods because the God we worship is a God who enters time and space, comes down to earth, can do so. The God you worship stays in heaven always, never comes to earth. Two completely different gods, two completely different paradigms. Therefore, the analogy doesn't work. So don't let them get away with that. They say that, oh, Jesus is the same in the Bible and the Quran. But the problem is that you have, you have taken the Jesus and you have elevated him to the state of, of divinity. Absolutely not. They're completely different Jesuses. They're not the same Jesus. Not even the name's the same. But the Jesus we see here is not the same as what we see here. This Jesus is nothing more than a human, a messenger, uh, probably second only to Muhammad in importance, but certainly not the Jesus who is God himself, not the man-God, God who became man and entered time and space and lived for 33 years on earth. Two completely different Jesus. The fallacy of irrelevance, number seven, introducing issues with no logical bearing on the subject as a proof of credibility. Now, this one comes up all the time. Completely irrelevance. They say, we know that this is an authoritative book. We know that this could only come from God because it is the best piece of literature written anywhere bar none. Produce a surah like it. Produce anything that comes equal to it. They ask me all the time. I get that all the time at the end of a debate usually. Ah, that has, that's totally irrelevant. 
How can you tell it's the Word of God just because it's written well? But even more so, what criteria are they using? I'd like to know exactly what criteria. Whenever they ask me, I did this back uh, at the Trafalgar Square a few years ago, there in front of thousands of Muslims. Sheikh Omar Bakri came up to me, we had, we'd had a debate on the Quran, and then he said to me, okay, Mr. Smith, if you don't agree the Quran is authoritative, then produce a surah like it. Produce any verse. Any verse that's equal to this. So I just open up this Bible, this very Bible that I have in my hands here. I opened up to Psalm 23 and I started reading it. Verse by verse, word by word, slowly into the microphone. They finally turned the microphone off, so I used my speaker's corner voice and just spoke to the 5,000 Muslims there. Finished the chapter, turned towards the Sheikh, and I said, Now you produce a surah like that. You will not find a surah like Psalm 23 anywhere in your scriptures. Oh, I could have used Psalm 2, I could have used Psalm 1, I could have used Matthew 5, I could have used 1 Corinthians 13, I could have used any one of them. Because I know that there's nothing that, in the Quran that's close to what we have in the book of Psalms. Or in 1 Corinthians 13, oh, there's so many chapters I could have used. There are so many surahs that we have in our Bible that are superior to what they have there. It's totally, it's a, an argument of total irrelevance, but you need to nip it in the bud. Because by doing that, you elevate the Bible to where it belongs. We don't claim because it's beautiful, therefore it's divine. No, that's not what we say at all. We know it's written by men, finite men, failed men. We know, therefore, that it's, that it's open to criticism. We don't make the claims they make against their Quran, but they make the claim, it's totally irrelevant claim, therefore you need to challenge it and you need to nip it in the bud. Another one that comes up all the time is the idea, oh, so-and-so has become a Muslim, therefore Islam is true. Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay has become a Muslim, and because Cassius Clay, the greatest boxer in the world, has become a Muslim, that proves that Islam is true. <laughs> you have to sit and wonder at the desperation of that claim. Because it seems to suggest to me that the only way they can prove the validity of the religion is by getting a few celebrities on board. Remember when Mike Tyson became a Muslim? I almost said to them, you can have him. He's well worth it. But certainly this does not prove a religion by, by virtue of who is there. I mean, they, they say all the, all the time that Jacques Cousteau, that great uh, oceanographer, because he became a Muslim, that proves Islam's validity. Absolutely not. There are myriads of people that become Christians, many of them very well-known, high celebrities that we could use, but we don't because we see how stupid that argument is. It is totally irrelevant who becomes a Muslim or who becomes a Christian. It's not who becomes a Muslim, it's why they become Muslims and who they represent and who they're worshipping that's most important. They tell me all the time, Islam is true, it's the, only, it's the greatest religion because it's the fastest growing religion. Therefore, by virtue of numbers, they prove their truthfulness. And I say, goodness, if you're going to use that criteria, then you might as well say God is dead. Because the vast majority of people in the world now believe there is no God. In fact, secularism is growing, probably growing faster than any other. Even within Muslim ranks, you're having a real problem, attrition rate, within their young people in the West because they're all becoming quite secular. Therefore, using your criteria, you might as well say God is dead. Using that criteria, Hitler was correct. If you're going to use the, the majority vote, then Hitler was perfectly correct in eradicating the Jews because he had the majority vote there in Germany. Don't ever use numbers to support truth. In fact, I would say truth is usually with a minority. Rarely is it with the majority. Phonic fallacies, number eight. The phonetic sound of a word should not be used to twist its meaning. They say over and over, we have now found Allah in your Bible. They're looking, they're, they're scouring our scriptures to find the name Allah, the God. They have now found it. Lo and behold, it's in the word Alleluia. Alleluia. But stop and think. Alleluia. Alleluia is not Allah. 
The name for God, even you have to laugh at that one, don't you? The name for God in Alleluia is not Alle, it is Yah, the very last syllable. There's a name for God. They have no idea of what Alleluia means. <laughs> it's a great one. You don't, you, for basically we just let it go. Or the one that we used the other day uh, when we were talking Muhammad. They have found the name of Muhammad in the Old Testament in Song of Solomon 560 in the name of Muhammad. There it is, Muhammad. It sounds like Muhammad, doesn't it? Very close to Muhammad. Or Ahmad, the glorious one. Absolutely not. One's an adjectival phrase, the other is a proper noun. They try to impose that name onto Ahmad, I mean, onto Muhammad, throw it off the adjectival phrase and replace it with a proper noun. You cannot do that. You cannot use phonic things that sound like, to, therefore, to be such. Number nine, straw man argument. Fools put false arguments into the mouth of your opponent, then knock them down. This is a common one. Oh, you Christians, you people have no idea what you're talking about. You believe that God had sex with Mary, Mary who is also divine, and from their progeny comes the child Jesus, and that's your trinity. Now, how many of us believe that Mary is part of the trinity or had sex with God to produce Jesus? Absolutely not. But see, their Quran seemed to suggest that in Surah 5, 116 where Jesus apologizes for he and his mother, uh, apologizes that he, that he and his mother are equated as gods. Well, that's a problem with the Quran. That's not a problem with us. It's a straw man argument. And we have, there's nobody in this room that believes that Mary is part of the Trinity or that Mary and God had sex and created Jesus. So why are they therefore arguing against it? It's a straw man. They do it all the time. Or they do the other one. Look at you Christians. You have these images of Mary and you pray to her. You worship her. You have these images of all these, uh, these saints and you pray to them. You are idolatrous. That proves that you, Christianity is not correct. Well, I just sit there and have to laugh at that one. I say, go ask the Catholics. That has nothing to do with us. Stop putting up straw mans and then arguing against something we don't believe. Ask me what we believe before you start arguing against us. It's typical of Muslims. They like to put up criteria of what you think they think you believe, and then they argue against the very, very criteria, which has nothing to do with, you, with, with what you believe. And then number 10, might is right. And this is the last one. Might is right fallacy. The loudest, the most long-winded supposedly wins the argument. We call this the, P, the 3P uh, paradigm. They poke, punch, and pinch. We get that at Speaker's Corner all the time. So we win an argument. And rather than change their tone or even admit or concede that they have lost the argument, they just say the same thing louder. And when we say something in response, they say it louder again. And they just get louder and louder and louder. And they assume by being the loudest there that people are going to believe them. No, this is like a bully in the, in, 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 uh, on a playground. Bullies act that way. Or one of the common tactics they use with me, uh, of those of us at Speaker's Corner, is whenever they realize that we have something that's worth saying, whenever we're starting to win the argument, they come up to us and they start poking and punching us, poking and pinching our, our midriff. Sometimes I've gone home with bruises all over my stomach from being pinched by these Muslims. In fact, I take a look at myself at the end of the evening, and if I have six, six good bruises on me, I know I've had a good day. Because they believe by pinching me and poking me, they've won the argument without realizing that that's the very thing that ruins their argument. You cannot just by verbosity or by, uh, by volume win an argument. You have to win an argument with good ideas. And we've got the better ideas. Expect to be poked, pinched, and punched. I, I don't know how many times I've got up been up on the ladder and Muslims have come up to me and they just swung at me. Punched me right in the face, I go flying. Back in the 1990s, I used to go through a, quite a few number of glasses. So I finally had these glasses made. They can go in any direction. You can punch me as many times as you want. I put my glasses right back on. They think they've won the argument. I just get up and speak as if nothing has ever happened and just continue on. The crowd doubles. And who wins the argument? I win the argument. Just by virtue of the fact that I do not get caught up in, the, in poke, punching and pinching. I refuse to use violence. And I refuse to acquiesce to violence as well. 
Don't let the Muslims intimidate you with violence. Don't let them intimidate you with volume. Don't let them intimidate you in any way, shape, or form. The gospel is too precious. And don't you ever use the same in kind. No, we've got too good a message. Remember, in everything we're, do we're doing, in all these different methodologies, in all these different areas where we can help you with, remember why you're there. The reason you're there, finally, is basically to entertain, not, I'm sorry, not to entertain, but to introduce. You're there to introduce Jesus Christ. You're there to introduce Jesus Christ dead and resurrected. So do not get caught up in all these tertiary arguments. Be careful what you're saying, that whenever you're speaking, you're speaking as, a, as basically ambassador of Jesus Christ. You are a pen in the hands of a ready writer. And as such, you have a responsibility, not only before Jesus, but also before those who are listening to you. You may be the only one they're ever going to hear the gospel from. You may be the only one who, ever, who, will, who will ever actually explain it to them in a language they can understand. You may be the only representative of Jesus Christ in their whole life. Make sure that every minute counts. Make sure that every word counts. Make sure that everything you say is pleasing to God. Because if it's pleasing to Him, it'll be pleasing to them. And if it's pleasing to them, then you have done your job. Okay? Off you go. Let's see what you can do. And go with God.